Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm here today with one of the old believers himself, Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Good morning, David Staples. You forgot to introduce yourself, so I'll have to do it this time. Yeah, I'm another of the old. <laughs> I'm another of the old believers. Whatever they are, when it comes to hockey, I guess you've. If I think, I think those of us who remember the '80s. <laughs> I was thinking of making a list actually of like here. Here's how you know you're an Oilers old believer, one of the faithful. Make a list of things, mm-hmm. of attitudes that you, or you know. Thoughts that you have, memories that you have, and uh, I'll probably do a post on that one day. Uh, you, you know, you, you one of them might be like you um, have a passionate opinion on who's better, Andy Moog or Grant Fuhr, but you would argue to the death that both of them were really freaking good. <laughs> that was a hell of a debate back in the day, man. Oh man! Oh, people, it's people. Just, very few people sort of liked them both. It seemed like, and uh, I mean. What's not yeah. like you had two great goalies. I mean, were you on either? I was on Team Fuhr. Were you on? Did you I, pick I a side was, in that one? I was too, and I I liked the solution of even split during the season and then going with Fuhr in the playoffs, which is basically say there's default after uh, 1983. So, and that's why Moog eventually left in '87 was his lack of playoff opportunity. And a very fine goalie with a fantastic glove hand. Mm-hmm. Not a very good puck mover for a goalie compared to Fuhr, who is probably the best of his age. Bruce, yeah, speaking good. of uh, the faithful and the old believers, the old believers were all very happy, or almost all of them. Mm-hmm. Kevin Lowe. Kevin Lowe was named into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Dan Bruce, I was surprised. I was, I, and I was, but I was also elated. Like I had a moment of pure joy when that happened. Just like, mm-hmm. So, so you and I, we've met Kevin Lowe. Uh, yep. You know, we, we we got to know him uh, through. Uh, you know, he he would meet with some people now and then talk about analytics. And mm-hmm. he's an he was uh, he's such a fine individual when you meet him. And mm-hmm. as I and I think this is what you hear repeatedly from people in Edmonton that this is a, a great Edmontonian, a really great guy. But he was also a fantastic hockey player. So I just want to congratulate Kevin Lowe for getting in the Hockey Hall of Fame. What an accomplishment after a fantastic career as a hockey player. Yeah, ditto. Congrats. I mean, he was uh, uh, he was the ultra competitor, you know. You want to talk about the dividing line between uh, uh, what were you referring to earlier? Not the faithful, but the old time. The old believers? The old believers. It might be in the reaction to Kevin Lowe's entry to the Hall of Fame. I was frankly a little disappointed with some of the commentary I heard from Oil Country. I got it coming from other fan bases. Uh, but one of Edmonton's longest standing, in fact, you know, on the long-term record, their longest standing uh, hockey man who's been in this city in a hockey capacity for 37 of the last 41 years uh, and who achieved great success in the city as a player, which is how he got elected to the Hall of Fame. Um, And some of the response was, uh, I I found it frankly a little bit disappointing, but uh, my own response as a fan of that era, watch almost every home game the guy played, you know, live, is that uh, for the the type of player of which there are, we talked about this last week, so I won't go into many details, but there are players from core um, character players, defenders especially from other dynasty teams who made it, and uh, he qualified on that basis, and he got the vote in his 20th year. It's not like he got in right away. But to me, that the cluster of Oilers in the Hall of Fame, when I think of the core group of Edmonton Oilers, that were uh, dominant in the 1980s. He's part of that core, in my mind. So that's... uh, uh, A comparable modern player might be Brent Seabrook mm -hmm. uh, of Chicago, kind of that class of defensemen. You know, Adam Larson's kind of in that class a little bit. Um, You know, he's just this big, rugged, highly effective shutdown D-man. And, um, you know, to put Lowe's game in a modern context, of course, people can go back and watch those games. They're on TV now, and uh, you can get the DVD. So you can judge for yourself. 
he was a he was a hell of a hockey player. Well, Bruce, anyone else on that? Go the, ahead. Sorry. The one with you know those six Stanley Cups. Like if you look at the track record of people that won that often, I mean that six, makes them famous. It's part you know. I mean you play the game to win the cups, and the, this argument that well whatever team success you had as a player should have no uh, effect on your Hall of Fame candidacy. I think that's nuts. You're playing to win. Your team wins and wins and wins and wins and wins some more. Eventually, you get famous. You know. Anyway, that's uh, I, I understand that people want to all agree with my opinion, but I think he's a worthy candidate and probably the last to, of, the, of the Oilers team. And frankly, at this point, a little surprising that it finally did come down after all these years. But uh, there you go. It happened. There's going to be one more from that era, Bruce, who's going to get mm-hmm. in the cup. Not okay. on the team. Not on the team. Okay. Peter Pocklington. You think he's going to make the Hall of Fame? I think he should. Yeah. Okay. And this is this is this is coming from a person who, as a um, younger man in the 1990s, was a freaking thorn in the side of Peter Pocklington, mm-hmm. and criticized him savagely, uh, as only young men can. <laughs> that doesn't sound like you, David. Not at all. <laughs> so. I oh god I was mad about the Gretzky sale I just mm-hmm. I was so mad and yeah, well, uh, you weren't alone I was not alone Bruce and and we didn't even know there was money involved in all those other freaking deals and oh, now we did now it's well oh and the other ones yeah and, yeah, and the other one the fifteen million came out US right away was front and center Didn't the five million s- in the Messier deal was a secret for a long time yeah. and there was money in the Curry deal I think there was money been I just read recently there was money in the coffee deal like. Oh. So, and again, like, it's just, it was just the Premier League buys and sells players all the time. It's just the standards of the league. And, and, and really, there's nothing in theory wrong about the, it's just what are the rules of the league? And it just seemed to me the rules of the league at that time. And I know I was wrong, I guess, was selling players was, was a, was a moral failing on the part of an owner, you know, giving up winning essentially to get money. And anyway, I just had a strong reaction to it. But, and I, and I, just was so negative on Pocklington for years because of that. But he belongs in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He is a true character of the game. He built. No argument he, there. He is part. He is in some weird way his weird mindset and you know the weird zeitgeist on the Oilers that that you know this hugely ferociously competitive team is in part related to the owner. There's something about Pocklington Sather's personalities that rubbed off on that team, the brashness, the aggressiveness, the, the, just this sheer, we're going to go for it and we're going to be who we are and we're going to play this unique individual style. This is all coming in some on some level that's partly re- related to, say, they're in Pocklington. So um, you can't deny his success. You can't deny he was one of the key people getting the Oilers, Edmonton Oilers, Edmonton into the NHL. He was the key person in doing that. So... I will. I'm going to write a column about this because I feel strongly about it. He belongs in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and he he if how if Harold frickin' Ballard is in the Hockey Hall of Fame now. Harold Ballard was on the. Did they, I don't think they kicked people out, Bruce. They I think Alan I was reading Eagleson. that. Alan Eagleson got kicked out. I think he was the only one. But uh, Ballard, to me, no way, no how. I think he's in there. Let me just Google this. I'll I, check I have if he's in. very mixed. Motions on your suggestion that Pockington belongs in and all the positives that you say. I mean, he was a, a you know, a rapscallion from the Rebel League and he certainly lived up to every bit of that uh, of that. And he was the guy who said in November of 1979 that the Oilers would win the cup in five years. He's the guy that, you know, as you say, was he held up Gretzky as a deal breaker when uh, uh, the Oilers got into the NHL and, and won the, you know, won the. Uh, the finesse move and and uh, kept the the jewel in the crown and uh, uh, a lot to be a lot to be said. But uh, uh, how his career wound down here with all the sell-offs and stuff, not to mention some of the things that happened out in the in the rest of the world uh, that uh, left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouth. That uh, I personally wouldn't vote for him, but uh, I do recognize that. Uh, he achieved a lot, in, uh, especially in this first uh, few years as a team owner. Harold Ballard was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1977 and the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in 1987 because he owned the Ticats. So, uh, listen, uh, 
all those Pocklington was a villain in so many ways mm -hmm. and he's had troubles uh -huh. with yep. with with the courts with cases you know I think civil mainly I, I don't want to I haven't followed it close enough to comment on that so I'm just going to fact check me on all of the court stuff but there's been lots of court stuff there's so, lots of villains on the owners list in the hall of fame so yeah if you're going to get do, rid of all we do the have villains, precedent we do have precedent let's put it that way <laughs> we we have liftoff uh <laughs> so houston we are go I, bruce i just it wouldn't have occurred some i think john short was talking about it on uh twitter if i'm not mistaken and you know it's like stan fischler Apparently, he, Stan Fischler's not in the... He's never won that award for the, the hockey writer, the Elmer Ferguson Award. And to me, that is shocking. Yeah. Stan Fischler, like, say what you want about Stan Fischler. He, no one has followed the NHL longer than Stan Fischler. And, and he was the most prominent American hockey writer through, at least through the 70s. Like, I don't know, the I can't oh. speak for the 60s, but through the 70s and the 80s, Stan Fischler was easily the most prominent hockey writer in the United States. How is Stan Fischler not in the Hockey and Hall of he Fame? Wrote, he wrote a ton of books, and he, you know his books went all the way from, uh, you know, kiss and tell type books to uh, early hockey analytics type books, which uh, may have escaped most people. But I have a couple of them on my shelves, written by Stan and Shirley Fischler, who uh, that were sort of modeled off the Bill James baseball abstracts of the 1980s. And, uh, he's, yeah, very, very controversial, but in some ways for a writer, that's, that's what you strive for, right? You get to become notorious, to get people reading and talking. And, and uh, uh, you know, he's still on Twitter. I don't know how old Stan is now, but he'll respond. He's 86. Again. Yeah, I've, 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 I've gotten a few responses to, to him myself over the years where I said something, replied to something he wrote on Twitter, whether pro or con, whatever, and he would, he'll respond and he's, you know, uh, uh, he, he's, he's put it out there for all these years that when you talk about Hall of Fame, if you have one for writers, how he's not recognized, it seems pretty bizarre, but yeah. I think I think yeah. he uh, didn't he didn't he advocate for orange pucks wasn't he or was, I know that, was that him or that was John Gary Short was Davidson and the John, WHA. John Short was I think Stan <laughs> might have had something similar Stan I think was advocating for four on four uh, mm -hmm. I think John Short was saying and again fact check that I don't know if Stan was doing that but uh, you know interesting concept and with the size of the players and the size of the rinks the NHL may one day John Short was saying will one day go there now it's John's prediction and. Uh, maybe they, we we can all agree that the game aesthetically is much more exciting three on three than it is five on five. I think, uh, but I think maybe four on four uh, would be a, an interesting saw for NHL hockey to to get it freewheeling again. And uh, anyway, we won't have that. I'm a traditional. I'm a traditionalist on that score, but I, you know I like the game. The idea that the game has so many different manpower situations possible, all the way from you know six on five down to three on three, and just by you know penalty calls and and uh, uh, you know other other things, and of course now the overtime they went they did go to four and four and then to three on three in regular season overtime. That we, we see some of those uh, variations. And unfortunately, the coincidental penalties rules, I think, have detracted from the opportunities to see more of the different situations throughout a game. You rarely see a four-on-three power play anymore, but uh, the basic five-on-five -five game, you got to keep it, in my view. Like, you take the center out of the game, uh, you're, you're, that's a pretty fundamental change to how you line up your forwards. Yeah, I'm not going to debate you one way or the other because I don't have a okay. strong thought on it. It was just a, one of the interesting kind of concepts that that Stan uh, apparently advocated in, and he was, you're right. He was always looking for, like he, he didn't like Paul coffee. He advocated for Langway to get the Norris and he was always in a bit of an Oilers uh, doubter slash. He loved the Islanders. He loved the Islanders. Loved the he Islanders. always tweak the Gretzky fans. And you know, that was just part of the shtick. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, you know, a modern day comparison, and I don't know if either writer would like this, would be Wyshynski, right? Like he's mm -hmm. kind of a, a troublemaker, a, a, you know, provocator, <laughs> shit disturber. Stan had that going. He's not like that so oh, much. Oh, yeah, before. absolutely. But, you know, there was that aspect to Stan. You know, 
but there was no doubting Stan's hot like hockey knowledge and credentials. Like he'd followed the Rangers since the 1940s. He was a you know avid rabbit and is a fan of the game. So keep on going, Stan. Maybe you'll see it. Maybe you'll see it, and I, maybe I'll write that column too. Okay, Bruce, let's talk about the the uh, the Oilers getting the first overall pick in the draft, which now seems f- fairly certain. Uh, <laughs> the NHL had it, held its draft lottery on uh, Friday night and uh, selected the order of who's going to win, and the, the most disappointed people in the world were in Ottawa and Detroit because they didn't yep. win the lottery. And um, the... It's still not lo- known who's going to win the lottery. Bruce, are 16 teams? Are, are they going to put all 16? Te- is, is it just the eight teams? It's the that eight that lose the first round. That Play are going round. To get in, in, yeah. So the, the idea was the 15 teams that miss the playoffs uh, are in the lottery. We just don't know which eight teams are going to lose the play-in round and then technically, I guess, miss the playoffs to be included. And they... Uh, the NHL had several options. They, they definitely, definitely wanted to have um, a televised event for June 26th, which was when the actual draft was originally slated. Did you watch it? Oh, yeah. Darn right. I watched it. And uh, well, they, it was, got you. they got you, man. They, it worked. I've watched every draft lottery that's <laughs> ever been held. And whether the Oilers were in it or not, I watch. So, okay. anyway, this it's only half an hour, and they had a bunch of other stuff and information in there and uh anyway it was uh uh i wrote about it the night before and thinking that what would happen if the uh you know a couple of picks went to the uh uh play-in losers would that actually change the motivation of the teams in the play-in round and of course what do you think one of not not, only one of the picks went to the play-in losers but it's first overall so you lose in the play-in round, you have a 12.5% chance at first overall. You win in the playoff round, you still have to win four more rounds to win the Stanley Cup, which even if they're all 50-50 series, it's about a 6% chance. So you have actually have a twice as good a chance to win Alexis Lafreniere by losing the opening round than you do to win the Cup by winning that play-in round. So the motivation... I, I can't imagine players not going for it, but I can see team management and stuff saying you know what uh our team was it's not very good you know we really shouldn't even be in this play-in round i won't be too disappointed if we lose and if we lose and get lafreniere out of it so you know so much the way better uh but i the individual players the the questions about motivation for me on the players stem from the overall situation you know this covid thing this idea of playing under the bubble for you know upwards of two months for the successful teams and how much all of their hearts will be into the playoffs compared to how they normally are like everything is so different and there's going there's so many different pressures on on the players now these whole playoffs are going to be weird if they even get off the ground so i'm going to say bruce that i see zero chance that a player uh, will have that on his, will think about that even for a second, Mm -hmm. Uh, tanking, doing less um, because of the draft pick. Right. They might have, I just, well, listen, and and if they did, like these are highly competitive individuals, like monster competitors. You know, many of them, like they're famous for, not going to name a name here, but there was a story of a former Edmonton Oiler so ferociously competitive, uh, like was playing a game of pool and he, he lost the game of pool and broke up the pool cue over the guy's head that he was playing. Whoa. So this is, this is a, uh, that's assault. Yeah. <laughs> was not the first or I last. remember tipping the scrabble board over a couple times. Yeah. So I never ferocious, actually hammered my opponent, my victorious opponent with a ferociously competitive individuals. These, these guys are, and, and I think actually the weird, the weirdness, 
Like they're not going to have the fans there, but maybe this claustrophobic environment they in, they're in will even intensify like the, the feeling of the team, the us feeling of being them. together, us against them. Like our whole purpose, we have one purpose to win. Mm-hmm. We might even see like higher levels of cohesiveness and ferocity and fanaticism in, in a weird way under these circumstances, like just total tunnel vision. You're there for one reason. Let's get her done. So I don't think the players, I have no concern about the players in terms of tanking. The GMs, <laughs> okay, I don't think most GMs, like, but they're not all the same, right? They're, they're, we're talking about 31 different individuals mm-hmm. uh, with varying degrees of possibility of winning in the playoffs. But so, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure Brian Burke would say, you know, I'd rather like jump off a cliff than, than uh, tank. Like it's, it's not in the DNA of an NHL GM to do that kind of thing. Not in Brian Burke's DNA. Some of them are little different breeds of cats. And could I, would I think maybe one of them might have that thought? Hmm. Yeah, I think so. I, I honestly think so. And Bruce, but here's the thing. They have limited ability. Even if they had that thought, right. I think it would be a passing thought. Because there's not, they can't make a trade anymore. You can't make a trade to tank. I mean, every, you know. Every GM who, who's theoretically still in the playoffs race and makes a trade at the deadline is throwing away the rest of the regular season, uh, throwing away a theoretical chance at winning the playoffs, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but they can't they can't act on it right now. So I don't think they're. I think it's a passing thought. And when and, and everyone who's going to be there is going to be there to win. And if they lose, they're going to think. I'm not that unhappy in the end because we weren't going to win anyway. They probably think, and this is a great consolation prize. And especially the one who wins is going to be overjoyed, but that's how I see it. Yeah. I mean, unless there's some way of influencing, you know, the, the, the makeup of the team and I'll just throw a wild one off the top of my head. Uh, Carrie Price in Montreal has uh, expressed some, some reservations about coming back to play. And if Montreal management says you know carrie you know if you choose to opt out we won't think any the worse of you and then price opts out and they're they're doomed then against pittsburgh right in the playoffs and then they're they're in there with a 12.5 percent chance at alexis lafreniere how good would that look in montreal right so that's a so uh, listen could that happen i think it i think the primary driver of something like that wouldn't be you know, would that be a thought in their heads? Yes, I could see that. I could, I could see that as a thought in their heads. So I, I, I will agree with you on that. But I think the primary driver of that, I think there's going to be some players who have, um, for whatever reason, because I, I noticed that people have an intensely personal response, which is not surprising to COVID-19, because everyone's personal situation is slightly different. We all have different um, economic concerns. We all have different health concerns. And th- so we have these very strong and personal reactions to this uh, phenomenon that impacts us all. So there are going to be some players, uh, I mm-hmm. think, who will not want to play. A- and and it will be completely related to COVID for whatever reason, even though, you know, you could, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into the debate, but they will ha- have those reasons for not wanting to play. And it's going to be an interesting question what the NHL does with them. We've had, what, 26, 25 players out of, a, you know, what is it, 1,000 players or 500 players? 500, yeah. 500 players uh, who are tested, who have tested positive in this early stage. Yep. So, uh, you know, which is indicative, I think, of the spread of the disease. Um, it's unknown. If you did testing, like mass testing, like we have in Alberta, for instance, I think you'd be finding out, uh, you know, tons more cases in the United States. Um you know, my take on that is uh, not surprising. Um, it looks like it's really spreading in the United States. These players are all young and healthy, so fingers crossed. Um, most people who are young and healthy have no, this disease is usually they're asymptomatic or low symptoms. So hopefully hopefully that'll be the case with these players. I, you know, I, and again, I, I said this last week, I think this is expected. It's a little higher than I would have guessed, but I think it's expected, and this is what the first this first thing is all about is getting mm-hmm. it, learning lessons. Okay, yeah. you guys, you thought you could go eat at, uh, you know, at, at, uh, as Bob McKenzie was saying, you can Earl's. go out to Trader Joe's or Earl's and, and eat. <laughs> Actually, you can't. If you want, if yeah. you're serious about this happening, you're going to have to take a lot more precautions and quarantine a lot more than you have been doing. 
so we'll see if we'll see how everyone reacts to that and how serious yeah. everyone is. I think everyone's pretty deadly. I'm going to say they're pretty deadly serious about the hockey part. Bruce, my concern about this all falling apart at this time isn't related to COVID. It's about the CBA. Yeah. And and I do not understand. I don't know if I ranted about this last podcast or last, but maybe I did or maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand why on top of the complexity of trying to hold the playoffs under COVID-19, uh-huh. the mass complexity you're also trying to do the cba a new cba agreement i don't get it like it's like i'm gonna jump off this this 200 meter cliff into a shallow swimming pool see if i can do that oh and i'm also going to fill it with uh, great white sharks <laughs> <laughs> here be sharks uh, Bruce. that's what here here be sharks that's what is happening when you get into the cba the whole thing could come crumbling down because of this ill can i think it's maybe they had no choice though maybe because mm-hmm. i don't i don't know what do you think uh, well i was going to say let's add some eye of newt to our witch's brew but <laughs> i think i like your analogy better like cba has been i mean that's just been this huge freaking obstacle the last three times in a row they couldn't agree to it without the oilers owners locking out the players for half of a season or a full season uh I think the return, it's partly the return to play that's driving, you know, the players think well, we're going to return to play. we got to have something in place for the long term. And I also think there's a hell of a lot of pressure on both sides that hockey now has already had uh, to the fault of nobody this time. It's work stoppage for the 2020s. We can't afford to have another one. We can't have this current CBA collapse in 2022 and have another lockout, uh, you know. That we've be. got to find a way to come together on this thing. And obviously, there's some huge uh, bones of contention. I mean, our team, Panarin, holy moly, he didn't exactly pull any punches with his statement last week. And, uh, you know, there's... What did he say exactly? Oh, he... He doesn't uh, want to give up. You know how much sympathy I had for Artemi Panarin's rat? Mm-hmm. Zero. Yeah. None. About a, a guy who's making millions and millions of dollars in a league that's going to have half the revenues, complaining that his rev- salary is going to be cut in half. I had zero sympathy for Artemi Panarin. So there you go, Artemi. I yeah, think, and well, you know what? I, I think this is going to be the reaction. I, the, the only way this is going to work for the players and the owners is they've, they've figured out this 50 50 split. And if the players aren't going to be suddenly, if they're suddenly going to be unhappy with 50 50 because it means. Instead of getting ten million a year, you get five million a year. Well, that that's the deal, and I, and I understand how that's really unwelcome news to anybody. I get completely get that, like a fifty percent pay cut for anybody, hugely unwelcome. But that is the the only hope for this thing to go forward without huge labor unrest is for um, everyone to just realize this is the reality. We're in a fifty fifty split, mm-hmm. and the the pot just got a lot smaller. So we gotta. We've got to accept this. And and when you're making millions and millions of dollars, well, um, my sympathy goes out the window a little bit if you're going to complain about losing, uh, you know. No, I heard the owners, fair, are, owners are looking for more than 50%. And if that part of the oh. thing is changing, I, understand, I can understand the players uh, being well, unhappy they? about is that. that? Ha- if, he's, but, if he's complaining about that, then I, then I have sympathy for Panarin. I guess I should have read his comments before I started ranting, but what I got of it, the gist of it was that he was unhappy with taking less money. And and I get that, completely get that, but come on, man. Uh, yeah, well, here, like, here's what... We have 25% unemployment, Bruce, in Alberta. So that's my, right. uh, my own economic uh, concern, not Artemi Panarin getting a few less million. Yeah. Well, his, his his statement, his motherhood statement at the beginning and end, I'm very much looking forward to the playoffs with the New York Rangers. I have concerns, not only about the health of players and their families, but also about the long-term prosperity of the NHL. For nearly two decades, the players have protected the owner's income with a scroll, including throughout this pandemic crisis, even as owner's equity continues to grow exponentially. It's time to fix the escrow. It's as we as players cannot report to camp to resume play without already having an agreement in place. This is what's driving. We are all in this together. Also, I know the process for selection of the hub cities is ongoing. I sincerely wish that my teammates and I could train and play games at MSG and bring employment and economic opportunities safely back to New York City for Ranger fan and all New Yorkers. So another motherhood statement at the end. But 
a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, turmoil in the middle of that statement. And I'm not sure a lot of these players like totally understand what the escrow is, and they always wind up battling against each other because basically it's different ways of sharing the same pie that you know has this escalator function and all that stuff. I just understand the general thing of hey, they're clawing back some of the, the some of the contract I signed. I don't like it. If, if, like so fair taxes. enough, but the escrow is there so you can have the 50-50 share. It's how you ensure the 50-50 share. That's why escrow is there. So when he's complaining about escrow, like I get it. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to not get $9 million a year. He wants or $11 million a year, whatever he gets. He wants, to, he, he doesn't want to get oh, six. Okay. But this is the deal, man. And the, 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 the idea about the owner's wealth ex, ex, uh, going up exponentially, fair comment if you go, pre-COVID, right? Mm -hmm. the, the value of the teams. That is a fair comment on his part. Of course, they they bought the team, they invested in the team, so that's a different argument. But I, I think it's a it's a weird argument to make in the time of COVID because the, the value of these teams is actually going to drop, perhaps significantly. And the the some of these owners, if they're in the wrong business, like if your owner's the grocery king, then your team's in the money. But if your owner is the, you know, uh, airplane if he owns air airlines maybe he's not uh so liquid anymore so i think that like him categorizing all the owners is in one financial right situation where their incomes are increasing exponentially is like where is he getting that from can, can you can you can you show me his his show me your work artemi on that yeah. because i i'm not buying it necessarily but the owners have gotten like he it is a good point but the players have also gotten a lot more money in the last decade too so um, is this if the system's not working see this is the problem of throwing the cba into it it just it's going to cock it all up but we'll see yeah it certainly is a, a it is a witch's brew for sure of all these different things they're trying to negotiate and my my concern about this return to play thing i share ryan mashag uh, talked about this earlier today and he's bang on point the big fear is what happens in the training camps that precede the players collecting in these two massive bubbles that are going to be controlled there's going to be 24 training camps and we've already seen you know even in phase two i think it is they call it that tampa bay had that issue with their camp where multiple people <clears throat> tested positive in the camp and so that's um uh, that's a, that's going to be a big hurdle, and, and uh, they're going to have to get through and out the other side of those training camps and with 24 teams ready to play, or else they're going to be scrambling hard. Yeah, and this is what this early stage is for. Figure mm -hmm. out your processes. Learn. You know, if people are getting sick, learn. Don't get sick. Like, figure out how to, how to avoid that. Because it's possible. Well, it is possible. I mean, look at... Some some areas are doing it better than others, often for partly for geographic reasons. It seems like the more isolated a region is, maybe the, the better chances they have of, of not having a massive outbreak. I mean, we certainly see that with the islands in the, you know, with Taiwan and New Zealand and other places like that. So maybe that's not where they so should have gone. La Ronge, the Saskatchewan. Oh, is that right? Is there an outbreak yeah. there? Sorry yeah, to hear that. Been, yeah, they've had trouble up there. Bruce, let's talk about the, the mock. Uh, the not the, the draft and uh so i i again i've crunched all the numbers of the top top 20 of the top um kind of amateur uh sleuthing um hockey scouts people like cory pronman and scott wheeler the athletic and bob mckenzie and craig button and mm -hmm. sam cosentino um uh, ryan kennedy a bunch of people so their list i'll just give you their top 10 uh, Alexis Lafreniere, Quinton Byfield, Tim Stutzel, Lucas Raymond, Jamie Drysdale, Marco Rossi, Alexander Holtz, Cole Perfidi, Yaroslav Askarov, who is a goalie, and Anton Lundell, who is a Finnish uh, center, not a Swedish center, as I wrote in my post and had to correct. Mm -hmm. um, so, Bruce, what this draft has is an unbelievable amalgam uh, group of forward talent. Yeah, and by the time the Oilers draft, I, I think that they might be really in the looking for a center. Strange as that may sound, I think that they—I don't know if they're going to—I doubt they'll draft positionally, but I do think they'll be taking a forward. And there's some really good centers available then. So in the mock draft, Bruce, 
the, the one interesting question to me, and I don't know if you've put your mind to this, is I think the, the forwards are going to go in kind of order, obviously. But the question is, who's going who's gonna to upset that order and take defensemen um, who are a little less highly rated? That's the big question to me of the, um, than the, than the top forwards. Who's going to take uh, Jamie Drysdale, who is a fantastic player, apparently? Uh, Sean Patrick Ryan says that. Who's going to take Jamie Drysdale? Who's going to take maybe Jake Sanderson in the top 10? Um, other defensemen who might enter into it, and I'm hoping the, the, you know these defensemen do enter into it, Caden Gooley, Braden Sh- uh, Schneider, Jeremy Poirier, Justin Barron. I'm hoping that some teams grab these players, have a need for defense and grab these players because that means a better forward will fall to the Edmonton Oilers. Who would you guess that Jamie, who's going to take Jamie Drysdale, in your opinion, if you have thought that through it all, Bruce? So who's going to take Moritz Sider and Philip Broberg this year? Is this what you're asking? Guys that go off the board a little higher uh, that are D-men? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. And uh, I haven't put a huge amount of thought to uh, the specifics of the individual teams other than, you know, I mean, Ottawa and Detroit obviously have serious needs at all positions. You know, you could make a case for for uh, uh, just best player available for those teams. And that, that I think, will be the, the general rule for the, you know, the, the, the seven teams that we know that have picks two through eight, but not number one, uh, will be... Uh, uh, will be best player available, and there are a couple defensemen that probably will work their way into that uh, into that top eight. We uh, we know who number one is, we just don't know where he's going, and so it's at least possible to sort of line up the dots as you did in your your um, post mock. that you did Friday night with the yeah. mock draft of the top eight picks. And I mean, Lafreniere was the obvious number one, even without us knowing. Right? And, and in other cases, you were able to look at. Uh, at the needs of each individual team. I kind of feel bad for Detroit that had such a horrible team this year and, you know, worst winning percentage in the salary cap era or very close to it. And yet they, they got the worst possible outcome, losing all three lotteries with their uh, with their best odds and falling all the way to number four overall. But uh, they're still going to get a good player. That's a good news. Like, this draft is deep enough that uh, that whole top eight and more is, is excellent. I, th- I think the I think you know I was initially thinking that Anaheim that Jamie Drysdale would fall to Anaheim, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think if I was to do the mock again and second thought, um, I don't think he's going to fall that far. I think some team is going to rate him a little higher, mm-hmm. and um, I think there's also maybe this is my experience for, through the decade of darkness. If you try to build through wingers, um, your team through wingers, I think that you're not the best plan when you when you have that top pick you so it depends how many great centers are out there now of course Lafreniere is not a center he's a winger but Byfield's a center Stutzel's a center so there's two they're going to go mm-hmm. I think I think that's pretty sure now the question is do do the teams see Marco Rossi and I think Cole Perfidi both played center but they might be wingers as well so do are they seen by Detroit and Ottawa uh, drafting fourth and fifth as centers. If you know, do they believe these? Because if they don't, I think one of those teams, either Detroit or Ottawa, will think Jamie Drysdale is a fantastic player. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a defenseman. Other than like in, in the terms of what a team needs to win, I think it's center, defense, and then your wingers. Um, and goalies are such a crapshoot; you don't draft them. Um, so I think. You want to go with, um, I think it'll be Detroit who probably take Drysdale, unless they really think Marco Rossi is a top-line NHL center. You see, I'm looking at Ottawa Ottawa having number three and number five. Yes. They might go forward D. You know, that's sort of a that's pretty what I, standard yeah. attack with two, when yeah. you have two high draft picks is to pick one from each position, you know, yeah. each, each row of players. And so there's a pretty good chance Drysdale winds up as a as a senator. You know, the interesting thing is Ottawa has, other than Brady Kachuk, when you look at their forward group of forwards, man, they are hurting for forwards. Mm-hmm. And if they could get like, if let's say Ottawa thinks both Stutzel and Marco Rossi 
who played in Ottawa are going to be centers. Like you could have your one, two centers in this draft. You're done. Like you're good to go for. So, so maybe they'll hop on that too. So I just think it really comes down to the, the teams, what they rank, how they rank these uh, two right. players, Perfidi and uh, Marco Rossi. And I, and I, I have no opinion whether they can play center in the NHL or not. I haven't seen neither of them play. Alrighty, Bruce, mm. we've been going through the prospects. Mm. Let's start with um, the latest prospect. We, we talked about Kemp last time, and we're right. in this run at defensemen. And yeah. so let's talk about Marcus Niemalainen. Yeah, do the Oilers ever have a ton of defensemen? In the, we have, I think, nine defensemen in the top 16 of our rankings, including 13, oh. 14, 15, 16. But there's a ton of prospect defenseman. Uh, Marcus Niemelainen was a guy who they drafted in the uh, third round of 2016. They drafted three D-men in the same round. That's hard to do. Uh, but they used all three of the picks they'd accumulated that year at the trade deadline. They traded Justin Schultz and Ted Purcell for three third round picks and they, they picked all of Niemelainen, uh, Matthew uh, Cairns and um, Philip Broberg Four years later, they're all still on our prospects list. None of them has ever played a game, even in Oklahoma or in uh, Bakersfield, let alone Edmonton. And they're still considered long-term prospects. But uh, things are looking up for a couple of them, namely Niemelainen and Broberg, both of whom signed uh, with the Oilers four years after their deadline, just before just before the Oilers' signing rights were about to expire. They signed both guys. And I think in the case of Niemelainen, that's probably the single biggest piece of information that we had that caused him to shoot up our rankings, that, you know, the Oilers actually saw this guy as having a future. We had a good report on him from uh, uh, then outgoing play, player development boss uh, Scott Housen saying Oilers intend on signing these guys. They did follow through and sign both, so he was speaking truth. Uh, what they see in Niemelainen is a very tall, gangly, um, very mobile for such a big guy, kind of shut down defender with very close to zero offense, which is probably going to be his undoing and the reason why he's still, you know, ranked way down at number 15. Uh, but the idea is he's now uh, planning to cross the pond and uh, take up uh, North American hockey. And, of course, he played two years in the OHL, so the, he's not new to the narrow ice. So at least in that sense, he has a little bit of a head start. And the questions are sort of questions beyond the control of anybody right now is if and when the AHL might start up again. So I, I speculated in my post that he may join the growing list of Oiler defense prospects who wind up getting loaned back to the domestic leagues next year, even though he's signed a deal with the club. He, uh, we, we had an interesting conversation where you and I were trying to figure out what is what is this player's ceiling? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> a player with this... You know, because usually the ceiling is pretty high for a player. Uh -huh. It gets less as a player gets to be 21, 22. Like when they're 18, they could be anyone. Like you never know. You know, who, who knew it, it when Z Zidino Chara was 18 that he was going to be Zidino Chara, even when he was 20? Who knew? Yeah. So, um, Mike Melbury sure didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nima Linen, though, we, it's, he's, he's a little older now. I think he's 21, 22. He just turned 22, but he's having okay. his fifth year on our prospect list and he just turned 22. So, yikes. Okay. Uh. So, um, he's, and we were having a hard time setting a fairly, the highest ceiling that we could set was Martin Ranson. You know, so if everything turned out well, that was, that's what, that's where we ended up. Wasn't no, it? I know. I know. And I'm not happy <laughs> that we got, we nailed his, his Sorry, necessarily. Marcus, we went with two, we went with two former Oiler prospects that we know well from their repeated appearances on our Martin, list. Martin, Martin Garnett and Mark Berenson. That's, that's the low and the high. Uh, they were both a little more offensive-minded than Niemelein, and they all have the same uh, general thing of being constructed out of pipe cleaners, you know, 6'6 six, six and 185 pounds or whatever. <laughs> Anyway, he's uh, he's uh, 
Not a perfect comparison to them, but I, somebody got into it with me on Twitter of saying, well, if Marinson's your high bar, why are we even talking about this guy? And I'm saying, well, do you want an honest com- comparable or do, should we just compare him to Chris Pronger the way all these <laughs> draft guys always say, well, this guy could be the next, you know, and it's always some superstar. He ain't going to be a superstar. Sorry. No, he ain't. He, he can really skate and he's really big and rangy. So he could be kind of a, a third, uh, you know, let's, let's be honest. Like I, I see him as a third pairing shutdown D man who mm-hmm. can move the puck and um, may improve as he gets older, moving the puck well enough to get into the NHL for some games. And, and hopefully listen, if he plays 200 NHL games, that's not bad. That's Come on. Career. That's, you know, let's, it's hard to get in the NHL. Lots of people want to be in the NHL. You know, they're 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 striving. Tons of com- competition. So if Mark, Marcus Niemelainen, he's well worth talking about. I never like that argument. Why are we talking about the? Well, why are we wasting our time talking about the fourth line center? You know, the truth is, like hockey is a to some extent, it's a weak link game. When you're when your fourth line center is out there, they might put their first line center out there, and they might score a goal in a game where there's only going to be five goals. Because of mm-hmm. the mistake of your fourth line center. Hockey is a weak link game, and the weak links on your team will kill you. Your third pairing D-man will kill you, will keep you out of the playoffs, will will keep you from winning the Stanley Cup. And until you until you get decent third pairing D-man, you, you will not win the Stanley Cup. So I completely disagree with, with people who see the game that way and wonder why we spend so much time talking about it. We talk about it because it's important, because it's the difference between winning and losing. It's not the only difference, but it's one of them. Yeah, well, and we write about hockey 365 days of the year, so we can't talk about the same 10 guys all 365 days, right? So, well, we, we could. Do, we do look around at the, you know, at the uh, guys coming up the system. And I personally have written now three posts about Marcus Niemelainen in the last three months, so I hope I don't have to write about him again anytime soon. <laughs> but I mean, he's at least he's sort of come about he's like the Loch Ness monster you just we just had a sighting of Nessie right he's actually coming over they signed him he's you know he's actual uh, um, now he's gone from prospect to uh, you know actual uh, signed and in the organization as opposed to on the reserve list and that's a big step the other big step that he took last year in uh, in uh, Finland was he changed teams to ask Asat, A-S-S-A-T. I, I, I always look at it and think asshat, but it's not asshat. It's asshat. But he, he jumped from 14 minutes a game to 20 minutes a game, which is a huge step. And I mean, in, in those leagues where they typically dress seven defensemen, a 20-minute D-man, I mean, he was number one on his team for ice time. And whilst his actual stats barely change because it's the kind of game he plays doesn't show up in boxcars, uh, that ice time stat was a real um, was a real sort of shining star. Whatever the opposite of red flag was, was green flag. That here's a guy that's re- making real progress. Uh-huh. So, so let me get it's it's asshat. It's not asshat. <laughs> <laughs> and you are ready to you are ready to write the biography Finding Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> Him playing top minute pairing minutes was hugely significant. And uh, those teams, full of good players, they you know you took it. They took a group of those players from the Finnish league, and they beat a really good group of Canadian players at the World Championships. Um, mm-hmm. Not whenever that was recently, last couple mm-hmm. years. So yeah. the players in the Finnish league are bloody good, and league. and he was he's this. I I've I've watched him play in junior. I watched some of his games and in the tournaments back then. And man, he can skate. He's a really fine ho- skater, and uh, you know we'll see. We'll see if he can become Jacques Laperriere. <laughs> uh, well, there's, a, there's a comparable for you. Bruce, you're on Michael. I'm Alexei Semenov, and you're going to Jacques Laperriere. <laughs> I wanted to have the hyperbolic uh, reference that, right, that only, the the only, the, that only <laughs> the old believers will, will uh, understand. Yeah, I did win a Norris Trophy. Um, Michael Kesselring, who I just wrote about, mm-hmm. is another of these kind of string bean kind of guys. But, uh, Bruce, both you and I have had really strong impressions of him based on development camp viewings, not game viewings. But right. um, from what we've seen of him, man, uh, last year at this time, actually, we were there watching him in dev camp. Yep. Wish there was dev camp this year. Too bad. Yeah, too bad. So sad. Uh, so 
here's the thing about Kesselring. He's like six 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 five six six. Still a growing boy, evidently. Love if he got it to six seven, six eight, six nine. Um, and he's putting on weight. He's now over two hundred pounds. He, he, he previously he talked about being two hundred and twenty pounds for this coming season. So we'll see if he gets there. If he gets there, look out. This because every. This is a player who every year and within seasons and themselves has improved immensely. He went this this past season, you know, from uh, U.S. high school hockey to um, USHL. And this past season, he went to play for Northeastern University, which is Hockey East, one of the best hockey conferences. And, man, he was coming to a stacked team with tons of competition on defense. And it looked to me, you can't, it's hard to tell from the numbers and everything else, but it looked to me based on his third highest shots on net for a D-man, third highest block shots on the team numbers, that he was probably, Bruce, in the t- made it to the top four. Mainly, possibly because he's a right shot guy, but also because he's a damn good hockey player who has, you know, he's kind of a, the dark horse candidate to become, like on this whole list, if there's a guy who's going to surprise us, I think it's this guy. Because he just keeps getting better and he's huge and he's really smart as a player. He's cagey. He seems to have some pretty decent puck skills. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm excited about uh, – wa- I'd love to watch him in some games, though. Yeah. And so yeah. – and the proviso on this is very few players who are ranked this low on our list ever make it in the NHL. It's really tough, huge competition. Probably won't make it. But I I, I have a good feeling on this guy. Yeah, he impressed the heck out of me at both uh, dev camps that I saw him play. Uh, first year, I was just kind of thought, you know, he's like super raw, but man, I mean, he's towered above everybody at the camp. Like, he really is a huge man. And uh, he can skate uh, well for someone that size. And of course, like most big guys, he's faster than he appears because they appear how fast their legs you know, you kind of do a stride count when you think how fast the guy's moving, but how long that stride is is a big part of the equation. And he's got um, uh, he's got some skills. You know, I won't say six skills, but he's got stick skills, and he's got uh, uh, he's got a little bit of offensive uh, uh, flair to his approach. I mean, as much as you want to count the Billy Moore's Cup, but he wasn't shy about. He wasn't Vincent DeHarnay out there, you know, just hanging back and, and uh, uh, looking after business in his own end. He was, uh, um, uh, and, and from the first year to the second year, what impressed me was how much progress he'd made in that year. Like, he really was a standout at camp last year. And as you correctly noted, the night we both watched the Billy Morris Cup, that uh, if someone had come completely out of the blue and they said, you see that big guy, he's the Oilers' top draft pick this year, you would have believed it because, you know, there's there's usually this massive gap in the skill levels that you see right away. And he's got enough skill and, of course, that dominating size that he he really did stand out. So he's a project, long-term project. But, uh, uh, you know, in, in some, in one alternate universe or hopefully this one he's Colton Pareko at age 20 right yeah <laughs> agreed he is like he's let's just look up where Colton Pareko was at age 20 uh but uh yeah he's got a similar kind of skill set he's he seems to be a complete hockey player and uh loved his game Bruce you are uh, uh as I look up Pareko uh you are writing about Theodore Landstrom Theodore Lindstrom, yeah, yeah. he's the guy that the Oilers signed uh, this past summer. So it's he's making his first appearance on our um, uh, on our prospects list, uh, and technically he shouldn't be on it because uh, he won't be eligible for the Calder Trophy, which is our usual requirement. He turns 26 a month before the deadline of September 15th, where someone's 26 when the training camp opens. They're not eligible for the Calder. But we made the executive decision among us to include him because he's the first time on the uh, with the team. And from, you know, from every sort of legitimate perspective, he's a prospect as of right now. This will be his only year on this list. But just give us an, an, a chance to investigate him a little further and maybe rank where we see him. Uh, he is, uh, to put it in perspective, 
Uh, he was born five days before Jujar Kara, who was drafted in 2012 and came up, you know, with uh, uh, a year in college, a year in junior, two years in the AHL, finally made it up into the NHL, became a full-time player, which he's been for two years, and he's still you know, younger than, by days, younger than Theodore Lindstrom. So to call him a prospect in that sense is a stretch. I mean, we should be getting a fairly fully developed player in terms of skill set. And those skills include every single report you hear on this guy, speed, 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 wonderful skater. And that's really the trademark of his game. He's tabbed as a, a offensive defenseman. Uh, elite prospects gave a short report. Lindstrom is an offensive defenseman who moves quickly on the ice. Great skater. That's an entire sentence. Has a good shot and is fairly good at penalties. I think that means power play. At, on the downside, Lindstrom needs to work on his defensive game and improve his positioning in order to reach his potential as a top defender. So he sounds like a fast left shot, Philip, uh, not Philip Larson, uh, Joel Pearson that basically came in a similar role last year, came over from Sweden, actually got some NHL games, wound up in uh, AHL. And Lindstrom is, uh, you know, he's he's coming over a little bit late, but uh, uh, he's got, uh, you know, decent offense. He went from a point every three games. He played two years in Fargetstad in uh, SHL, uh, almost identical years, uh, 16 points plus 8, 15 points plus 8, 47 games each year. This year in Forlunda, he also had 15 points, but in only 31 games, he had an injury plus the season, of course, ended earlier, and he was plus 9 on that team, and he's been consistently plus his entire pro career with two years in Alsvenskan and now three years in the SHL. So what little that tells us is that he's not getting killed out there. You know, a lot of that's team strength dependent, as you know. But at least it's still a, it's still a positive indicator. Like it's not a live or die stat to me, but it's a you know it's a, it's it's an indicator. It's an arrow and it's an up arrow in the case of uh, of uh, <clears throat> Theodore Lindstrom. So he's an interesting prospect, and I'm going to add him to the long list of of European defense prospects who may wind up getting loaned back to Europe because what's he going to do in Bakersfield between now and Christmas. So uh, when you when you brought up uh, Joel Parson, I just felt a little sad inside because, you know, man, he had a rough ride here in North America, and, and I, you could see the NHL player there. I think yeah. I could see that if you just come over a few years earlier and developed mm-hmm. in the North American game, like he's kind of that slower, smart, really super smart, good passer, defenseman, good shot. And, um, man, he, but he was just, his reads in his movement, and he, he just was getting beat and hit and didn't work out in the NHL at all. And so they, they kind of got rushed to the NHL, right? Like, they they, they picked him over Ethan Bear initially. And um, so so I hope Landstrom gets, a, he will get AHL time first. He's an interesting signing, because he, he, he looks like a fairly quality signing on a certain level. But he must think he might have a chance here, and maybe it's an indication of the Oilers looking to make some moves on the left side. Um, you know, I, I don't. We'll see what happens with Chris Russell, but but you know, Nurse and Clefbaum aren't going anywhere, and uh, you know, Broberg's coming on, but you know, and Caleb Jones is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but things can change with the expansion draft coming up, and there might be a, a, a time between before Broberg's ready where he could actually find a, uh, a chance in the NHL. But I just think having watched Parson, man, he's got to play in the AHL for start him there and keep him there for at least 40 games. Because what happened to Parson was in over his head and he never caught up because of it. Like he got injured and he was behind the eight ball. And okay. if he ever had a chance, that that was a, a case of rushing him. He got hurt. Player. He got hurt in camp, and then he got hurt in uh, Chicago in Game Six. He got crushed by I think it was Brandon Saad really hammered him and yeah. put him out. And you know, so he had two injuries before October was out, and then on he was playing catch up. And let's face it, the uh, the job for right shot puck moving defenseman uh, went to Ethan Bear while without a throw because the old person wasn't even available to play. And by the time he came back, he was well behind a guy that was three years younger than him 
And he just, there was just no catching up from that. So I looked up Colton Pareko's numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, not a bad comparison at all as a 19-year-old to um, Kesselring. He played at the University of Alaska, Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. uh, now, I'm not, that's the CCHA. Is that a really tough league? I don't know. That's a pretty good league, isn't it? It's good, yeah. So that's a good league, too. Mm-hmm. Um, he got more points. But he yeah. was on a team where it looks to me, and I'm not an. I just looking at the numbers. I, I don't think they had quite the depth. They, there was three other defensemen on the northeastern team, a second round pick and two fourth round picks at the NHL for the NHL that Kesselring's competing with, plus a bunch right. of other guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that the Pareko's team had that level of competition. So I, I'm guessing he got a little bit more choice, uh, maybe even power play time. So yeah, that there, you know, that's this. That's the absolute That's fantasy, fantasy. Yeah, yeah you, you want to write the headline that gets people salivating, which is a little bit uh, of an overshoot. It's the Colton Pareko comparison. But yeah, you can see it. There is that, you know, what is the chance? One in one in 20 chance that you're one in 10 chance that it becomes that player. So, Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I but, mean, long, long odds against it. But, I mean, you tell me who in 2013 was saying, you know, this Colton Pareko guy is destined to be a star in the NHL. I mean, yeah, you know, so some of these guys, you know, you start with the raw tools and then you, you know, you go from there. And then this guy has tools. So, And, and I just love how he improves every, every year, improves every year, improves every year. So let's hope he's got to do that again this year. And he, I'm sure he knows it. Now, will there be a will there be a this year from Michael Kesselring in hockey right. hockey East? That's unknown. Would he consider like Phil Kemp? We brought up. Would he consider turning pro if there's going to be an AHL season? Um, you know, because he has a chance at a pro career, so maybe he would. You know, rather than give up a year of development, um, which is really crucial for him at this age. So it's going to be interesting times, Bruce, for all these players. Some tough yeah. decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is why the European loan option is one to consider seriously for the European trained players. And the Oilers already got three guys that are going to stash over there this year. And they could have upwards of two more with uh, Nima Linen and Lenstrom. Uh, a guy like uh, Kemp or Kesselring, where else would you go besides NC2A? But if those leagues get cancelled, then, uh, you know, options will be thin on the ground for, for those fellows. But... Uh, you know for sure the Oilers will want to get them some playing time somewhere. And here's my bet: those leagues will not be canceled. They will mm-hmm. play. They will play. The just and I'm just basing this mainly on the fanaticism that the Americans have for sports. Um, they'll find a way to make it happen because it's a huge cultural priority for them. And now, am I wrong? Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, that's, my, that's start, my guess. They may not start in October, but. Yeah, I would be surprised if they wrote the whole season off unless, you know, there are other factors that, you know, are going to upset the entire apple card. I mean, a lot of this is a house of cards that we're assuming is going to be solid enough to to hold the game. Right. But uh, different levels of game with, you know, more dependence on gate receipts and so on, like the AHL. All those, there's there's lots of questions everywhere you turn, really. And yeah, I don't know how much possible. it costs to. Like it, I don't know how like is it three four hundred thousand dollars to run that kind of hockey program, but you know maybe if you ground down the costs as much as you can, you don't have fans paying for any of it. But probably fans aren't paying a lot of it anyway. Um, I, I suspect they're going to find a way to to play hockey because the the games themselves, in terms of the risks presented to the players, um, I, according to like our health officials who are allowing these games. There are they are a risk. Dina Hinshaw says this is a risk, but they're allowing people to play hockey this summer, for instance. So I'm in, I'm joining a hockey league this summer, and uh, mm. um, you know, within the cohort, within all the rules, following the rules strictly, and we're going to play. So I, maybe it'll be possible for them. But this our group is just a small group of people right. playing at one. You know, we're not traveling around everywhere, and it's not complicated because of that. But people are finding my point is people are finding a way to play hockey. Because we all love hockey so much. Alrighty, are we? Um, where are we? I, I'm training, Bruce. I'm I'm getting ready. I'm mm-hmm. I'm gonna go for it, man. I'm ready. Right on. It's on. Yeah, lots of people are ready, and it's uh, it's uh, just this darn uh, 
uh, stubborn little virus that's uh, upsetting the apple cart on an ongoing basis. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll be able to play, and hopefully all these guys will be able to play. I'm really missing development camp. I mean, this is where our reports on guys like Niemelainen or, or Kesselring or, or Lenstrom are not as good as they would be in a different year where we actually had a chance to go down and see them with their own eyes and assess their, you know, their fundamental talent level. And unfortunately, you know, we just don't have that. And it's just one of many missing links between no playoffs, no tournaments, you know. So yeah, we didn't get to see the Oilers' first-round draft pick, Jan Misak, either, so. <laughs> That's right. Or Alexis Lafreniere. Um all right, is that it? Do we have anything else on our list? Or the goal? <laughs> They're going to take. Are they going to take a goal? Askarov. I, I see Askarov going to one of the teams that has like three first round picks, like uh, New, Jersey New Jersey or Ottawa. Yeah. You do, eh? And they pick a forward, a D man, then a goalie, and then they pick Murray. He'll go around number twenty with one of those teams. That's that's a wild ass guess, but I think it's a, sort of an educated guess. Of, or teams that have one draft pick may not want to invest that in a. And a goalie. What's the highest goalie in recent years? Uh, that Tampa Bay goalie, Vasilevsky, went in the first round, did he not? Oh, yeah. There's some top 10 goalies and some really super good ones. I mean, Carey Price went fifth overall. Uh, you know, uh, well, Mark Andre Fleury, first overall. That's getting a little distant. I mean, this is yeah. almost the pre. Yeah, it was the, the last Adel- 10 years, no, no goalies taken real high. It's. Uh, Vasilevsky might be the Alma highest. I think Toya went number six. and he, Jack he, Campbell? Uh, yeah. like Jack Campbell went 16th. That was yeah. about 10 years ago, though, now. Um, uh, I can't think of anyone else. Vasilevsky, Jack Campbell. Yeah. We don't, they don't like them goalies anymore in the first round. But Askarov seems to be the exception to the rule. I, I don't know. I'm against the orders taking him because I of the you know all the analytics have, that have been done I think are fairly convincing on this so Ken Holland used to be a goalie <laughs> saying <laughs> so he's taking him you know it oh god people's heads will explode you know yeah. the analytics people and my head will I, I'll be oh, thinking oh, fans, my head won't explode but I'll just think like are you sure are you really sure because you could have taken you know there's any number of great forwards in this draft I'll be gobsmacked if the Oilers do not draft a forward Bruce, there's just so many good ones. And Man, I'm hoping there's a need there. Yeah. Now, of course the Oilers are going to be drafting 31st overall. So, uh, yeah. All right. Let's leave it there. Thanks for talking, Bruce. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the cult of hockey podcast.